Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, my guest is Dr. Syed Hoda. Dr. Hoda is a bone and soft tissue pathologist. And today on the show, we'll talk about how Dr. Hoda got involved during the peak of the COVID crisis in New York City. We'll talk about his views on how pathology should be more vocal in the greater medical community. And we'll talk about Dr. Hoda's appearances on two other podcasts and a documentary film. All right, here's Dr. Syed Hoda. All right, Dr. Syed Hoda, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks so much for having me, Dennis. Great to be on. Oh, thank you. We're, we're kind of in the middle of uh, match season here. And I noticed uh, recently on Twitter, you posted uh, your personal statement from your residency apl application. And I thought it was really interesting. What, what was the inspiration for, for posting this for everyone to read? So I saw a lot of um, a lot of posts about personal statements and people saying uh, that they're still working on it or they haven't finished it or they're agonizing over it and you know they don't know what to write and you know I I have uh, one of one of the reasons I'm on Twitter you know is not really to just meet with people of my own title or you know equals mm -hmm. I I like to meet with you know talk to students and residents and retired people and you know all sorts of people so uh, med students are a group of people I, I especially am fond of reading their thoughts of because i you know i do teach at the medical school here at nyu and and it's one of my favorite things to do is actually mentor you know the next generation of people um so when i read this i i started uh, digging through my own emails to see what my personal statement looked like it was just out of curiosity i hadn't read it in 15 years uh and you know you you kind of get, remember the the vagueness of it like after 15 years but you don't you don't remember the the raw details and the words you would use and you change as a person in those 15 years so um yeah. I, I i dug it up and at first glance i thought it looked a little crazy you know and i <laughs> and I, and I, and I and i thought oh my gosh like it's amazing i'm even here today and then the more i kind of read it i read it a couple times and then i kind of you know the more you read something that you've written in the past your mind tends to travel back a little bit further to to where you would have been then and how you felt then rather than looking uh -huh. at it from the mind of today you know then it's like the stuff you did yeah. 15 years ago you had a different mind then oh absolutely I, I think i was a completely different person 15 yeah. years ago yeah totally totally and myself too and it's funny that you read something from that long ago and then finally you start to remember what it felt like uh, back then and then I actually loved uh -huh. it. And I, and I think I reminded myself of why I actually chose it and then submitted it. So some things as, a, as an exercise to myself uh, to share with others, but also for the benefit of others to see, I don't think it fit into the usual personal statement uh, that I've read since then, you know, interviewing candidates and, you know, talking uh -huh. to students. So I felt that it was worthwhile to share. And I, and I was a little bit, you know, shocked at, at the positivity of people reading that old personal statement that I hadn't seen in years. Uh -huh. uh, do you remember uh, like back at the time, what sort of feedback you got from that statement? Yeah, it attracted a lot of attention. And I remember at the interviews and these are again, things that you forget um, unless you really try to remember. And as I went through my memory, I remember every interview, you would be like, you know, your personal statement, they would point out one or two things from it. 
uh, and they would say, you know, your personal statement was very unique, or, you know, I was struck by this, or I was, you know, I, I thought it mm -hmm. was fascinating that you said this. And, you know, it, it really, it really brought back those memories. I think in the time of, at the time, you were very stressed, and you don't pay attention to, to everything happening. But in hindsight, it's easier to look back on it fondly, <laughs> fondly, I think. Sure. Back then, I probably overanalyzed those statements, like, oh, was that too crazy for them? Or, you know, why did they point that uh -huh. out? But I think, it, I think yeah. it's okay. I guess it, it it got you where you needed to be. Um, and, and you stated also that you still stand by everything you wrote there 15 years later, which I, which I found interesting. C can you explain yes. what you meant by that? Yeah, so that's another thing, right, is that it's it's one thing to remember how you felt 15 years ago. It's another dimension to to see if, if it actually holds up still. Or if you, or I guess it could go both ways. If your past held up or if you held up to your past. Um, and I found that there was enough, yeah, and you know, because you can change and, and you cannot appreciate the past or actually the past may not apply to you anymore. So you go in both ways. And I, and I felt that uh, it felt like the same person, I think. And it felt like I could say those things if I was in that situation again. So that's, that's I guess, what I meant about me standing behind it. It, it didn't seem like a, a, a different set of ethics or values or morals or personal you know, value that you have to yourself. It felt in line. Not, uh, I guess that's what I meant by standing by. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, you know, I've noticed you're a vocal advocate for doing things your own way. And I think definitely the personal statement that we just talked about, that's an example of that. So you clearly had that mindset even even back then. You know, have, how, how did you come to have that sort of mindset? And like, uh, throughout your career, have you met some uh, like resistance or, or hardships, I guess, from from being that kind of person? Yeah, I think that we evolve out of our own stories so i'm sure you have a story about how you are here right now on the phone with me a, a series of many many events that led to to where you are and what you're doing and and the things that mm -hmm. you find value in now um yeah and over time what i've the few things i've figured out about life the very few things i figured out is that people tend to hold value to the things that they understand by themselves so you can tell people their opinions uh, your opinions about like how to do things or what to do or whatever but in the end the things that people really hold value for themselves are the things they decided for themselves or that they did in their own way and o over time i've seen this repeatedly amongst not not just me but everyone around me that i've ever watched is that people have the most devotion the most energy the most loyalty to the ideas that they actually feel a part of so i i think that of course you can take perspectives from people around you and you should uh and listen to you know many other wise people around in the world but when i say go do things your own way um it's with consideration to other people's you know opinions and thoughts but if you feel strongly about doing something in a certain way it's okay to do it that way Worst thing that can happen is it doesn't go well. But the good right. thing about it is, yeah, you know, the, the good thing about it is that you'll know that you tried it. And, and that, if anything, is this kind of liberating feeling to know that you tried something your own way. And if it didn't work, yeah, you can try it again, but it's not the end of the world. Sure. And you can definitely, I think, learn from when things don't go the way you wanted them, wanted them to. You can, you can learn from something from that. 
Yeah, so much, right? I think we learn so much from when things don't go the right way. And, you know, and something else with, with many of the people that I've spoken to on, on this podcast so far, and it seems like you're one of those people as well, like the path to getting where you are is not a straight line. It curves a lot. It, it certainly did for me. Do you feel that way also? Yeah, I'm not even sure it's a line sometimes. <laughs> you know, right. it goes <laughs> it goes all over the place. Yeah, I, I think we have so many variables in our lives. And, you know, one of the things, Dennis, that I, that I always remind all the students, the residents, my colleagues, everyone around me in medicine, medical culture especially, whether it's nursing, PAs, physicians, students, whatever, people tend to identify themselves by their degrees or their titles or their, you know, their, their whatever, their names uh, associated mm -hmm. to the job. But, but we are a person first, and that person has been taking a crazy road. Um, I mean, the career road is one thing, but the person has also dealt with a lot of things in their life. So when you combine the career and the person, you have a winding road with a lot of complexity and a lot of vari variables that come into play. Um, no, absolutely. It's definitely not a straight line. If it's a straight line, I would actually be concerned, to be <laughs> <Yeah>. honest. <laughs> right. Yeah, me too. I, I wanted to talk just a little bit about your uh, particular subspecialty. This is uh, bone and soft tissue pathology. Now, looking at it from my perspective as a PA, this is it, one of the more interesting specialties, but it's also probably one of the more complicated because you often have multiple margins and unusual shapes and, and things like that. So how did you, how did you become interested in bone and soft tissue as a specialty? So uh, interestingly, you know, in residency, you probably know that, you know, it's a four year residency for most people. Yeah. Um, I didn't, you know, you'll meet a lot of residents who are in the second or third year are just sure of what they're doing. They're already applied and they've already, you know, secured a fellowship like two years in advance. I had nothing secured at the end of third year and actually people were around me were like what are you going to do what are you going to do and i i said i'm not sure yet you know i said well no i, I again it kind of goes back to doing things your own way i didn't want to force myself to do something i didn't like so uh -huh. so i just kind of kept you know going along my thing um i had a an attending who i still know you know he's still practicing um much older attending he used to be the chairman of where i was doing residency uh, he was a bone pathologist uh, he is a bone pathologist dr khan and he said, hey, I need to go into Manhattan for a meeting, uh, but I can't go. So I want you to go for me to present a bone tumor case in Manhattan at this place called the New York Bone Club. The Bone Club oh. was like a very legendary. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a very legendary monthly meeting with with some of the finest bone pathologists, you know, uh, presenting like their hardest cases. He said, hey, go for me to present here. And I had literally no idea what I was doing with bone pathology at that time. Wow. So he, he tutored, yeah, he tutored me on the case and sent me and I went in totally naive, like uh, almost no, no clue what I was talking about. And I got there and, you know, there's these, these people were much older, you know, like close to, you know, like bit full professors and, you know, they've been around for years. They all knew each other. And here I am, you know, silently sitting in the corner and I stand up and present this case, which I have, 50% of the idea of what I'm talking about. 50% I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, and they were so uh, friendly and encouraging and different and not the usual kind of atmosphere that we that I'd always felt in the hospital. They weren't grilling me. 
They weren't saying, you don't know this. You know, they weren't saying, why don't you have this information? They were just kind of like talking to me. And they said, okay. you know, these are very hard cases and, and you, and, you know, you're doing a great job and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they went on through the whole discussion. And I sat and watched like four hours of this meeting after my presentation. And I went back and I said, that, that was amazing. That meeting was like blew me away, even though I had no idea what they were talking about most of the time. I just knew that that's the kind of conversation I wanted to have. Uh-huh. And I went back and, and literally within about a week, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, I'm the type of person that if I see something I like, I, I immediately know uh, that, that that's for me. So um, I knew that was for me. You know, I made some calls, talked to a bunch of people, and that's that's how it started. And you're right, Dennis. Bone bone and soft tissue pathology is a little wild. Yeah. <laughs> grossing, yeah. the grossing is wild. Yeah, the diagnoses are wild. The grossing is wild. Um, they're rare. They're weird. Yeah, and I like that. You know, I, I liked it. It was like a little niche inside of sure, pathology sure. that I that I really liked. Yeah. Do you think Dr. Khan had sort of a secret uh, agenda there, sending you to that? Like he wanted you to, he wanted you to get into bone and soft tissue. <laughs> I got I to tell you, I would I would say yes, but I got to tell you no. The reason why is that the previous time I had spoken to Dr. Khan, he had a multi-head conference, and he asked okay. me, and he used to grill his residents about what things were. He put something on the scope. I had no idea. I made up a name. I literally made up a name of a tumor. And then he, okay. he he looked at me and said, "It's highly unacceptable. <laughs> it's inappropriate that you just made a name." <laughs> wow. So I, I don't think he had a high hopes of me prior to that. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you were recently on a uh, on a show called Doctor Radio, and you talked about how you got involved with speaking with uh, patients' families that the, the patients being affected had COVID, and you. And a, and a group of other doctors got involved with speaking to their families. And, and, and you have, you've also, I think, a, a group of you also pre- presented on, on PathCast about the same thing. For, pre- for people who haven't heard these two things, can we kind of briefly go through what happened and how you got involved? Yeah, so New York City was really crazy around, uh, you know, the, the, our lockdown started in mid-March. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and our peak was around mid-April. and after this started, Dennis, so the OR shut down, you know, not that long after, like I think it was early April or end of March, the operating room shut down. So really pathology yeah. had come to a halt or was coming to a halt. Um, right. And I was getting very, very impatient because New York City was getting quieter and quieter and quieter. And I was coming to work. I was cleaning up old cases and it was freaking me out that I had no way of helping this situation. So, you know, some of us, you know, some of us don't want to get involved in situations like this. Some of us, uh, like myself, felt that I had an obligation to because I didn't do all this for so many years to like just run away from from an infection, a public health crisis. So, you know, I wrote an email to the administration in our hospital asking if there was anything I could do. I would I would be willing to go to the floors. I thought about this for a whole night because I couldn't sleep that night, and then sent them an email saying I'm volunteering to go to the floors, to go to admission, you know, ICU, whatever you guys want me to do, I'll, I'll learn it. You know, I'll figure it out and, and help in any way. And okay. I didn't hear anything back. Yeah, I didn't hear anything back. And then the, the chief of hospitalist medicine came up with this idea that because the family members of patients weren't allowed in the hospitals, they would have to uh, communicate with those family members. And it was really pretty sad, you know, like, 
Like, for example, I remember one of the first cases I heard about was like a 70 or 80 something year old man whose wife had been married for 60 years, 61 years or something. And okay. she could not come in. She could not come in to see him. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And it was it was very dramatic. You know, in our in our lifetime, Dennis, I don't think there's been a, a public health situation in which a spouse is not allowed to come in and see a sick, sick, uh, you know, husband or mm -hmm. wife. Uh, yeah. It's very unique. Yes. And this system came about to try to connect the wife to the husband. So not like how a nurse does it, but more as a doctor does it. So the idea was to have like me, I would do, so I led a team of 30 pathologists. Uh, I started this for pathology. 30 of us joined in. And what we do is we'd round on the ICUs and learn everything about a few patients. So we'd have four or five patients a day, maybe seven a day. We'd learn about what's going on with them. What, what's the last 24 hours like? What's the last five hours like? And then we would call the family members and discuss everything that's going on with them. And then if they want to do FaceTime or if they can do FaceTime, we would arrange it with the nurses for them. There were really amazing situations, like one guy whose glasses were lost, couldn't see anything, and he was freaking out. And, you know, I was trying to help the wife get the glasses to the hospital. And it sounds like uh -huh. nothing, but during COVID, this was something because it wasn't allowed for the family members to come in. So, right. Yeah, it was so unique. You know, it had nothing to do with pathology. I, I for for two months, I did nothing but that. What what sort of reactions did you get from the family members when you when you started calling them? Oh, they were they were so stressed out. All these families were super stressed out, and I think just to have a doctor on the phone, uh, because you know the ICU doctors didn't have time to do this. They didn't have time right. to sit and talk to patients' families, you know, and those families like. I think they just wanted somebody on the phone who could take down their questions or ask, you know, ask like, what did they eat? Or like, are did, were they moving? Like, you know, like really simple questions that I was aware of that I could relate to them. Um, okay. The plan for the next, yeah, you know, the plan for the next 12 hours, they can ask a lot of questions. And if I didn't know the questions, you know, a lot of the stuff I didn't know, I'm not a pulmonary expert, nor am I like an infectious disease person. But, you know, if I didn't know the questions, I would make a note and then find out and call them back. So, um, it, it was really, I think it was like a, almost like a doctor concierge service for them to have somebody on the phone who who's going to definitely deal with your issues. So, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And uh, I, I imagine people, the, the families and the patients both were probably very appreciative of having that kind of service. That's, oh, that's it great. Was it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dennis, we, in pathology, you know, that we deal with, you know, I deal with some patients sometimes, but it's not a regular thing, right? Like we don't right. constantly interact. And this was just, for me, it was, you know, it was something more humanitarian and the joy that they had, the, the, the thankfulness that they had of what we were doing for them. You could, they would, every day they would do this at the end of phone calls. They'd say, you know, God bless you. You're like a total angel. Like what you're doing is like amazing. You know, we, we like, we're so happy that you call us every day. And, you know, I think it was, it was a very wow. overjoyous feeling. Yeah. It was an amazing feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as a pathologist, you know, the 30 of us, 30 of the pathologists, they were all, almost everybody was blown away by that feeling. So, yeah, I believe it. That's, that's not, not something you normally hear as a, as a pathologist. I mm -hmm. imagine. Exactly. Exactly.
I'd like to take a short break right here to introduce you to a podcast called Genius, Sciencing Our Human Potential. And I have the host, Diane, here to tell you a little bit more about it. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk a little bit about the podcast that I just finished with Dr. Hoda. I'm Diane Wilson. I'm a peak performance coach, psychotherapist, and I work in applied neuroscience. My perspective is different than most interviewers. I love to know things from the inside out, and Dr. Hoda is a very interesting person. We had a really nice discussion, I think, that will help you understand and admire him even more. We talked a lot about Family Connect, but also what it was like to run toward and not away from the virus. The whole series is really intent on helping people understand science by understanding the people in science. I hope you'll subscribe to our podcast and thank you so much to this group for your support. I'm very grateful. I really see this as a time of coming together and I treasure that. Look for the link in the show notes to subscribe to the Genius Podcast. And now back to the show. When we started chatting, the two of us on Twitter, it was because you had posted something about pathologists not being visible and not speaking out about the field. And uh, it, it seems like to me that this is a problem throughout all of, you know, all of the pathology lab, the whole kind of hospital lab in general. So why do you think pathology kind of seems to be a, a passive like this? Yeah, it's a, it's a major, major problem in pathology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you get into people talking about residency training and stuff, you'll hear everybody saying that, you know, nobody's going into PATH, nobody's going into PATH. Why? Well, you know, the, the, this is a multifaceted thing that's built up over many years. I, I have very strong opinions about, about people not advocating in the right way. You know, I don't work for any organizations. You know, I don't, I, I mean, I work for my hospital system, but I don't work for any professional organizations you know, the, the more common ones that we have in our field. And, and it's okay that right. people do, but it's not in my agenda. Mainly because, Dennis, my opinion is that I don't think that the organizations have done a great job of advocating for our field. I think that, you know, we, we don't have political power. We don't have the fascination of medical students or trainees or health professionals, you know, even PA schools and stuff. Like, it's a very niche thing, right? I mean, even pathology assistant is a yep. very niche thing to, for you guys to go into. Um, yeah. And and I think it's just because pathology has not been loud and they haven't been well integrated into into the hospital philosophically. Like, you know, when I did this COVID patient care thing, the other doctors that were doing this with me were neurologists, surgeons, radiologists, but they were far more integrated into into patient interaction and hospital, you know, routines and stuff. Pathology, we were like it was like a foreign country for us to to be doing this. And it shouldn't be, you know, like actually we should be more familiar and we should be more in the dialogue and more in the conversations. And, and it's our fault because we don't get into it. We just think, oh, we got this biopsy to read or, you know, like we have this result to report. But healthcare is about the patient. If it's about the patient, it relates to every part of the patient. We, we've distanced ourselves from those things. It's not like anyone else has pushed us off, pushed us away. That pathology has pushed itself uh -huh. away. And I got to tell you, I mean, you know, this is going to upset people, but you know, I watch on Twitter and I watch people interacting and I'm not, I think it's great that you guys are doing these blogs because you incorporate all different types of people uh, from, you know, whether it's PAs, whether it's residents, whether it's students, whether it's attending. Uh -huh. But a lot of people are very insular in pathology. You'll see them only posting cases 
And they don't talk to anyone from internal medicine, from radiology, surgery. But, you know, part, sure. of the, part of the beauty of a social media place is to learn as much as you can from every different type of person you can learn from. And philosophically, you can actually see the problems in pathology just off watching the interactions of people from pathology. I, that's my opinion. I, I think I, I think I know what you mean. It seems like we're, you know, we're kind of just all talking to other people in pathology and right. just like, like talking amongst ourselves, um, right. which doesn't help. Right. It's, it's like if you go to a really big party and, you know, you go with three friends and you don't talk to anyone of the other 200 people, you just talk to your three friends. You're going to walk out of the party. Right. You could have done that by yourself in the family room, right? Like um, instead of having to go to the party. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you wonder why you don't meet any new friends. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I, I have done that. Yes. I have done that too. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I say yeah. that as an example, but I've done that. All right. So you mentioned to me and, and you, you know, said this, you know, pathology has not been loud. And, and you mentioned to me that you have some ideas about, you know, how, how, how do we get loud? How do we do this? We go to meetings for other specialties. We, we talk, we do podcasts like me going on Dr. Radio and talking to an ENT guy, you know, about, mm -hmm. about my COVID experiences. You know, I, I just did an interview that's going to air this week for, for a, a psychologist. You know, it's a really nice little oh, podcast yeah. that, yeah, the Genius Podcast. Um, and those mm -hmm. are interviews with people from nephrology, from surgery, from an artist. You know, I think that we have to consider that you're a person first, then a physician, then a pathologist. Not not the other way around, where you're a pathologist first, then a physician, then a person. And I don't I don't claim to be a master at this. You know, I'm I'm only one person. Uh, and and you know maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. But you know I I I just watch the things going on. And when you just say pathology, 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 you're not going to actually have any kind of um, dimension past your own specialty. And I think that people need to step outside. And the other thing I want to add, and I tell this to my residents all the time. When you're talking to a surgeon or like you need to talk about a patient, like, hey, just give them a call and talk like a person, you know, like not like a, you know, you're not giving a robotic result. Like, you know, you can mm -hmm. talk about the first patient with their name and like, you know, talk about the story of the patient. You know, it's a, it's a whole philosophy associated to it. And also standing up for yourself, you know, like if somebody calls you and say, hey, where's the result? Like, you know, you explain to them what you do and then you say, hey, I understand that. You know, it's a lot of anxiety for you, but, but, you know, it's better to take a little bit of time. You know, you have a conversation, and I think that's the part that's been missing from that relationship to other people. You know, we've got the radiology pathology conferences, the tumor board type conferences within the hospitals. Do you think that's a good way? I mean, it seems like because that mixes all the specialties together. Do you think that's the kind of model we should be going for? It's a it's a great way, Dennis. But I got to tell you, through the years that when I was a resident and since that, you know I've been in a fellow and attending, the best pathologists I've seen, the ones who are able to talk in the most communicative and open way, are the ones that don't just get up in a tumor board and present the the case or the patient and then sit down quietly. It's the ones who actually ask about like chemo when they're not even presenting the path, you know. And I've aspired to do that on my own. Is that Hey, you know, I'm interested in the patient they're discussing, but not just the path. I want to know, like, what what is that surgery that you're talking about? Like, what do you do in that surgery? Or like, you know, what does that chemo do? Or like, is that the right chemo? Or is there any other options that you have? You know, like, you're still a, a physician mm -hmm. too, 
And I, I've seen that modeled by a few people as I, as I develop. And I, I started to use that too. And I teach that to my residents that, hey, don't just be quiet until the pathology comes. Like you can still talk, you know, like you can, you can talk and be open. And I, and I think that's better for all of us. Um, that's interesting. That's a great idea. You know, you know, if, if it was not like that, Dennis, then the surgeon wouldn't have any interest in the pathology. The radiologist wouldn't have any interest in the surgery. And the pathologist wouldn't have entry, any interest. In, we would just talk about our own things and just be quiet in, the, in between, right? But, but that's, uh-huh. that's not the way that, you know, we're supposed to be. Like, it's nicer to have an openness uh, that you can talk about it. And you, we're, they know that you're not a surgeon. You know, like, if you, like, I've asked some really dumb questions. Like, oh, so when you go in, do you, like, how deep do you go into the bone or whatever? And they know that I'm not a surgeon. So they're, they're happy to answer that question then. Okay. That, you know, now I'm I'm thinking maybe I need to get a surgeon or two or a radiologist or something to talk to on this podcast. That that might be a interesting perspective. Yeah, I know I know some great radiologists. If you're interested, they're they're really interesting. And you know, the other thing about radiology that's fascinating: most pathologists don't even know that the radiologists have a tremendous amount of respect for pathology. And what somebody actually recently once told me is that we all, you know, radiologists, they were saying we, you know, we revere you guys as diagnosticians because you 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 know what we suggest you guys try to answer uh and there's something mm-hmm. very you know decisive about that like in the way that you try to answer it and you know we don't even know that stuff unless we talk to them about about that you know like it makes you feel uh you know it makes it adds another dimension to our work to, to see things like that that information that we get from from radiology reports and things that's that's invaluable I, I know definitely for, for grossing, when I have got to gross a, you know, a, a bone tumor, I need that radiology report. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a sign yeah. of a great PA, though, that, that you know, a, a really good PA scours that kind of information to get more information for their own grossing, you know, and, and I mean, that's what, that's what a good physician does, that's what a good PA does, and radi- a good radiologist will actually scour the path reports afterwards to see, see what they could have you know, what they could learn about what they diagnose. Yeah, I think those are some great ideas. I definitely feel like the, the COVID pandemic, you know, has really put a spotlight on the lab and it's, mm. you know, and it's kind of uncovered a lot of, or some, you know, that we need more staff for one thing, uh, that we need, that sometimes the supply chain is not exactly, uh, you know, we've we've run out of a lot of things. And I think those there, there's some things that need fixed and and covid has kind of put a light on that would you agree with that you know one of the one of the sadder things dennis about and this is more uh i guess about we have to understand what kind of a society and culture we live in i think that the lab has done overall i'm talking about like on a national level uh, laboratory medicine Mm -hmm. has done a pretty crappy job of 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 telling the reasons why they're struggling to have like slow results or you know difficult results you know, if this was done by, say, you know, medicine or emergency medicine or, or internal medicine, really plain language would have spelled this out all over the news that, hey, we don't have enough people. This is like super important. You won't have a result unless you get us more people, get us more money, get us more tests, you know, now. And instead, right. we, we have, you know, the stuff I've seen and nothing against the people. Who, I'm glad that there are path and lab people on TV or media shows, not as many as I would like to see, but there are they're around. But they tell it in very technical details, you know, like, 
like the the throughput capacity of this test is this you know i don't think people understand people have just come away with the perception that that the labs aren't able to handle themselves but but you and i know uh-huh. the truth that it's understaffing like you said it's under resourced we didn't even have like as many tests that we needed we didn't have as many people as we needed and and you know nobody said anything and that was our time to say it actually that hey this is when you the lab matters so make sure you remember this for the next time you know that the lab matters but nobody actually said anything and now we're we're back where right. we were right i mean i don't know if anything really changed I, I see like medicare is cutting you know reimbursements and stuff but that was the time to say it hey you guys value the lab you know show us right now it's very frustrating to me that that nobody actually stood up and said anything uh, at a national level right yeah, you're right. That was definitely the time to to do it. I mean, yeah, everybody needed, still does need needs the lab, and and it was never more uh, yeah plainly visible. Yeah, we, everybody was talking about it, right? Everybody was talking about COVID testing. Why were we not really taking off with this? You know, into the next level. I I'm mystified. Something that's a, sort of related. Now we touched on this a little bit before. There's a shortage of pathologists. There's definitely a shortage of forensic pathologists. And you touched on maybe why. Why has this happened? I mean, is it just that students aren't interested in pathology anymore? Or, you know, I've heard people say that, you know, when they've decided they would go into pathology and they've been told, oh, well, but you're you're so good with patients. Why would you do yeah. something like that? Is that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, is, is that part of the this, problem? I just saw that posted like a couple of weeks ago by somebody on Twitter. That Somebody just told me that. I, you know, I just don't think that, um, again, this, I, I'm going to keep going back to it. I think we've done a terrible job at, at selling ourselves as a fascinating and wonderful specialty with depth. I think what we've done is said, hey, we sit by the microscope. Hey, we look at bodies. Hey, you know, we look at uh, organs outside the patient. Hey, you know, like we've sold all the facts about it, but we've done it without relating to everybody else. And, and that's, it goes back to the idea that we haven't related to other specialties. So. I teach medical students, you know, I teach first and second year medical students. For the most okay. part, Dennis, histology has is taught in most medical schools by non-pathologists. Number one, that is a problem. Because yeah. if you're not going to see somebody, if you're not going to see a pathologist, why would you want to go into pathology? N- number two, the people who have been teaching weren't exactly the most, you know, things have changed. The education has changed. The, the young he, this generation is different and you have to relate to uh-huh. them when you're teaching a specialty and pathology used to be taught like you'd take a pathology class in medical school and they'd be like these are the you know uh pathologic diseases of the pancreas and like you know you'd have a guy stand up there and describe all the all the entities of the pancreas and not discuss the imaging not discuss the patient's presentation not discuss anything that's not the way medical education is anymore. They they do it based on, you know, specialty. So, you know, orthopedics has an area, like a section where they do like bone and soft tissue, they'll do like the orthopedic surgeon, they'll do like trauma care, they'll do all the things associated with it. So you gotta really okay. be yeah, you know, you gotta be in tune with how a medical student is thinking. You have to assume that nobody wants to go into pathology. So with that assumption, you then show them how pathology relates into the rest of medicine rather than just presenting Hey, this is pathology. Where nobody's going to go into something that is not connected to anything else. So it has to be connected. 
and and uh-huh. I and I think this is continuing. I, I think this goes back to the organizations doing a bad job of relating to the rest of the medical world. I think this goes back to teachers not relating it well, you know, for the large and a large part. And this also goes back to just not capturing the fascination of of people. Like, okay, yeah, forensics, you capture the fascination of a few people who watch TV shows and and investigations and stuff. Fine, they're going to try to right. go into forensics, but. But, you know, there was a scientific basis for this, which has been lost based on just gimmickry. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel that, you know, for the most part, pathologists don't have a patient contact? And I know that's changing a little bit in some places. But do you think that's part of the issue, that that maybe some of these students want to have that contact and they wouldn't get it in pathology? Yeah, I think I think pathology has to go back to patient care for sure. Um, and I've been trying to do this, and I'm working on some plans to to do that in a more consistent way. But I think talking to patients or being related, uh, you know, relatable to patients is really, really important. And I think we lost it over the years, really badly. Yeah. Um, and I and I do that with you know I have a lot of rare cases. I see rare sarcomas, rare tumors, and and I do talk to patients, and I encourage the surgeon to tell the patient that hey, I'm willing to talk to them if they have any questions, and they do. You know, they call. And I think okay. just us offering that stuff is something that nobody ever did. Like nobody ever told the surgeon, hey, just tell the patient to call me if they have any questions. That, that's like unheard uh-huh. of, you know, in pathologies. Yeah, it really is. Have you ever had a patient come and, and look at the slides with you? Yes. And <laughs> weirder than that, I had a patient who wanted to see her gross. And, and she, oh, had wow. a, she had a very complicated, she had like a chondrosarcoma with, with uh, you know, a malignant soft tissue spread like outside of the bone. She wanted to see her specimen and I had to draw the line because I was like, I think it's, you know, it's it's cut up, it's in pieces, it's in formalin. And I was like, I don't uh-huh. think that it's going to benefit you to see that right now, you know, and I and I had to kind of talk her out of it. But yeah, they, they do. There was a gentleman who came in to look at gout and, and you know, gout polarized okay. under the microscope and... And I mm-hmm. remember him saying, oh, it looks like little needles. Is that what was poking me uh, and giving me all that pain? And, I was, you know, I, I could only laugh and say, yeah, it could be. It could be that it looks like needles and it pokes you. I have had a orthopedic surgeon request like a, a, that's a few times this has happened, they request like a gross photo that I think they, the because the, the patient wanted to see what the specimen looked like. And ah. I think that's what they were doing with the with the photo. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good ar- argument for that. Yeah, yeah. There was um, there was one guy actually. This was the most fascinating is that he requested his femoral head intact back, and we normally never do stuff like oh. that. We never, you know, we usually don't give them uh, like an entire bone piece. But this was an older uh-huh. guy, you know, like a really sweet, like in his nineties, and he's like, you know, I have a plan because I've talked to this company who's going to make me a cane with my femoral head on the handle, and. The- <laughs> And okay, that's actually, a little weird. Yeah, and they're going to code it and finish it, and they've got a whole mechanism to do this, and it's going to be on top of my cane. And I thought, Dennis, this idea was so cool that I made this happen. You know, I was like, <laughs> we got to make this happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he did. He had this cane made, and he like he had it like polished and finished. And yeah, he was walking with a femoral head on on his thumb, his own femoral head. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess at least it was his own. Yeah. Wow. That, that, right. That that is weird. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, back to Twitter for for a little bit. So sometimes you'll post these little. I I I've been calling them poems. I'm not sure what what you're calling them, but 
and they're interesting. And one of them, I, I want to, I wrote down my favorite one. And you say, as I get older, I am finding that the best way to be heard is to listen more to others. The louder your voice becomes, the wider your ears should be open. So I have to ask, what inspired you to write this? Was there a particular incident that day that that made you think of this? Uh, no, I think I think I was very loud when I was younger, and I and I talked much more than I listened. Um, and one of the things we was, probably all did, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you know, in the last I'd say five years, you know, ever since I had my kid, I think I I, I had these changes happen like five years ago. Is that you realize that you know, it's probably just the process of getting older that that sure. you end up with more patience than you did. And you also realize that, you know, younger people than you want to be heard. And they, you know, they like the reason why I was screaming when I was younger is I wanted to be heard. But now that I have a voice that that can be heard or that people do listen to, then I don't really need to shout as much. And I think that just keeping my ears open to hear what other people are saying uh, often, you know, provides me with more information than if I if I'm leading the, the the dialogue. And I went to a leadership meeting last last year, which was, you know, again, a meeting with like all medical professionals, but I was the only pathologist out of 25. And there, oh. yeah, we had these like exercises there about listening. And it was very hard for me, you know, and, and you know, you have to, you have to try to, it was a mock thing to help somebody get through a situation like they're having a problem. And it was how how do you coach okay. somebody? Yeah, it was like about coaching, coaching people through problems. And what I realized, and they had a very interesting point, is that many of the times you asking questions is going to make them answer their own own problems. Like you, you don't always have to say what's on your mind to answer their questions. Like they they have a lot of the times people have their own answers already ready. It's just they need help in in getting them out of themselves like you know when they're asking opinions like if you're asking me an opinion about something in your career instead of me telling you mm -hmm. well dennis i think you should do this and this and this it would be more fruitful for me to ask you five questions about about your career and let you answer it uh, and a lot of the times the answer comes out like that and and i think that's that's what i kind of meant is that you know the the, the louder you become the stronger your voice becomes and the more that people trust in you the more you listen uh, will actually, you know, make you go further. That, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and I was going to ask you if you think this can be, this sort of mindset can be applied to pathology, but I think we've kind of already talked about that. Like it really could, we can listen to what the other specialties are saying and, yeah. and, and learn from, from that. For us, I think for, as a specialty, I think we need to get louder. Uh, I think we're still at like a, no. a, a pre-teenage years development right now you know like i think path needs to get louder and then open its ears and you know kind of progress with everyone the last thing i wanted to talk about and you mentioned this earlier you're you're going to be featured on an upcoming episode of a podcast called genius sciencing our human potential and like you mentioned it uh the host diane she's a psychologist and I've interacted a little bit with her on Twitter and other places too. Uh, how did you get involved with this project? Um, I think during the COVID times, you know, I had posted, posted some stuff about COVID and, you know, I, I really, I think another thing that accelerated is that during the COVID times, I attracted a lot of conversation and, and uh, people from non-pathology. And I don't think pathologists 
pathology people could relate to me that much anymore at that time because I was doing something that was not really related to path. And this mm-hmm. was, again, going back to the idea that I, and I'm not saying everybody. I mean, there were some really supportive people in pathology who, who really acknowledged that this was the unique and, you know, one-of-a-kind experience. Um, but the non-pathology people who reached out to me were, were very, you know, enthusiastic and inspired by this story. And, you know, she was one of those people who, who had uh, contacted me around then, and I got to know them. And, you know, I, I got to know a lot of people from internal medicine and surgery, and you know, it really broadened my horizons to interact with so many other specialties. And, and I appreciated, you know, I appreciated Twitter so much more after that. And it, actually, if you look on my timeline, prior to March 15th, I was posting just like every other pathologist, mostly, you know, 80, 70, 80% pathology. And like, I was still ranting 20, 30% of the time with, with, as you call them, poems, uh, which, which I, you know, it's oh, just that, the way, those are rants. Well, okay. you know, I, that's, that's, <laughs> well, that's the way I, that's actually the way I write. So, you know, I was a songwriter for many years. Okay. So I, you know, I was in bands and stuff. And for some reason, that's just the way I write like a poem. So I'm not sure they're poems, but maybe they are. Um, but, okay. but I think it kind of became my, you know, it's over the years, it's become my way of writing. So, Anyway, she got in touch and, you know, she, it, it was nothing really, you know, like the way people talk about broader issues of society and bigger issues of COVID-19 and, you know, just situations like that you read about, like you share with people or comment with people. And then, but I think she was very inspired by, by the fact I did a documentary too, which I think is going to the Global Health Film Festival. Um, they picked seven people in New York City who stepped outside of their own comfort zone to do something uh, during, like, did something away from their normal work or were working every day during coronavirus. And I was one of those people. And that, okay. rec- yeah. And and I think she watched those clips, and you know, people saw that stuff. And I think people like those stories, especially now, because you know a lot of people were stuck at home too, and it kind of gave them some inspiration that you know there's some other people trying to do the best they can get something done uh-huh what what is this documentary called i want to see if i can find it and maybe link it in the show notes yeah um, know? yeah it's called when i think it's called when the shift changes or when the shifts change something like that when the shifts change or when the shift changes there's a director named uh, lauren lauren andrews brown and she she kind of uh collected six or seven people to record this so Every morning before my work and after my work, I would record like a one minute video about what the day was like. And so it's basically aggregating all these people's experiences through the peak uh, week, you know, a few weeks of coronavirus in New York. It's very interesting. Uh, you know, it's all types of people. There's huh. a nurse, there's a garbage collector, there's all sorts of train, uh-huh. uh, there's a train engineer. So, okay. Yeah, very interesting. Huh. All right. I'll, I'll definitely look for that and, and I'll, I'll share that with everyone. That's. That, that does sound interesting. Okay. And a pathologist. So, so, <laughs> so what uh, do you have uh, in, in kind of in the near future? Do you have some other new projects that you're, you'll be working on? Anything you can, you can tell us about? Uh, yeah, I am working on a model for, for patient communication, um, but I'm still, you know, brainstorming it. And I'd like to, you know, introduce it next year uh, for our institution, you know, to, to, to do that. But that's, it's something kind of in the plans. I've been working on an AI project, okay. artificial intelligence thing for a few years now. So I'm trying to wrap this up uh, so we can try to put this out there. Something unique. It's about, you know, 
nothing to do with tumors and cancer. It's everything to do with infections. So it should be pretty interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it does sound interesting. Yeah. And otherwise, Dennis, I don't know. Wherever wherever the time takes us. You know. Yeah, well, well, in this, you know, unprecedented year, it, yeah, that could be anywhere, I guess. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, I've been writing a book, too. I think the book is very interesting. It's like small, tiny, tiny stories. You know, they're, they're, it's almost like they're limited in words. Um, but that's been like something really okay. interesting, because I'll, I'll do that while I'm walking through a hallway, I'll write a story, which is something, it's like a very um, mobile, like a mobile mind, almost just kind of, you know, wandering and writing a story. So it's very interesting. Okay. What, what kind of stories, like, are they medical related or just any, anything that you might happen to be thinking about? Not medical, but it's interesting because this, this idea started to me, I was on a, you know, I joined an organization called Doctors Who Create. And again, this was started by medical students at Penn University in Penn. Uh, but I became part of their planning committee one of their members last year to plan their event. Um, and this idea of writing stories happened with them because I was planning their event and then I'd be walking through the hallway and I'd have like, it wasn't medical, it was just anything. It was anything that came to my mind, like a story that would come to my mind about anything. Um, and that would become like a little mm -hmm. mic micro story is as I was calling it. And it just kept going. I've got this like file of just micro stories and I don't know what's gonna happen to it, but it's going somewhere. <laughs> I just don't know where. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that that sounds great. All right. This has been really fascinating. Dr. Hoda, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Dennis. It was really, really fun. Great big thanks to Dr. Hoda. And as always, there will be links in the show notes to all of the things we talked about today, including the podcasts and the documentary film. And if you like this episode, reach out to Dr. Hoda on Twitter and, and let him know. And then share the episode with someone you know maybe someone outside of the field of pathology or outside of medicine, and let's spread the word about what we do. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.